Hello friends, welcome to Beyond the News. This is the first show back of 2023. This is the 20th of January. Coming up on today's show, we're going to be hearing from Dr. Peter McCullough with his concerns over the vaccine. The video is entitled, It Looks Like the MRA is, is Transferring from the Vaccinated to the Unvaccinated. Listening to Jimmy Dawes, who's going to be playing a clip of the Pfizer CEO being confronted with some of the questions that people have over the vaccine and his profits and his past uh, business dealings and fines and other such things. We're looking at the, a heart-wrenching moment. Parents who refused to give their baby vaccinated blood is taken away. And some figures from the Australian government that are very interesting indeed. And also uh, uh, a more light-hearted clip of what happened when someone got fired from B&Q as well. So that and much much more on today's show. Let's start with the Health Australia figures. So this is from um, it's health.nsw.gov.au and there was a table that I've found which was very interesting indeed. So I'm reading one chart out of a very big document so instantly someone can say oh you're cherry picking some stats but it's all sorts of stats for all sorts of things. And this is the sort of one I find interesting. But again, it's taken out of a much wider context. But the uh, the numbers themselves are interesting and uh, I'm going to be reading them straight off the chart. So this is table one. Um, and this is, by the way, epidemiological weeks 51 and 52 ending 31st of December 2022. www.health.nsw.gov au forward slash coronavirus and this is table one it's oh, and this is going to be reading out numbers by the way so a great exciting way to start the show but people with a covid19 diagnosis in the previous 14 days who were admitted to hospital admitted to icu or reported as having died in the two weeks ending 31st of december 2022 so table one is admitted to hospital but not to ICU, which I'm going to assume stands for intensive care unit. Table two is admitted to ICU and table three is dead. So um, it breaks it down by gender. It breaks it down by age group. Um, it breaks it down by local health district of residence. But the one at the bottom breaks it down by vaccination status. So the and always bearing in mind uh, you know, the, the majority of Australia is vaccinated, I believe. Um, I think most of the Western world's various countries are. So worth bearing that in mind as well, that um, you're going to have more people who are vaccinated um, than not. So worth bearing that in mind for the numbers as well. But uh, these numbers are interesting. So vaccination status, four or more doses. So table one, remember that's admitted to hospital, but not ICU, 810. Table 2, that's admitted to ICU, 58. And Table 3, dead, 53. So, three doses, 377. That's Table 1. Table 2, 29. And dead, 19. Two doses, 218. Then 17 and 9 dead. One dose, 10. Table 2, 1, and 1 dead. No dose. Admitted to hospital but not ICU, 0. Admitted to ICU, 0. Dead, 6. So, I think, very interesting. Oh, and we do have another box. Do forgive me, unknown. This is unknown vaccination status. Table 1, 364, table 2, 35, and dead, 7. So it does look like, in terms of table 1, the more doses you have, well, the more doses you have, the higher the numbers are. And I do not know what percentage of the population had two doses, or three, or four. Um, I don't know those figures. Perhaps they're even in this... Um, huge set of stats but I've not seen them but just simply anecdotally 
I think from what I know, I don't know if Australia's the same, I have no friends in Australia, so perhaps this doesn't really make much anecdotal sense. But from what I've seen of the numbers and articles read out over the show, it seems to be, the. if I had to point out what population size was the biggest, I would say two doses, and then one, and then three, and then four, and then none. Oh no. Would I say more people have had four doses than have had zero? I don't know. don't know on that one. But I, I, I think more people had two doses than they had four. Judging, and this is purely a speculative opinion based on the articles, a guesstimate from the articles I've said before where we saw a big take-up in the first two doses, which was around 70 to 80%, and then big drop-offs in people taking boosters. That's what we've seen in Britain, and that's what seems to have been around the world from the articles that I've read out previously on this podcast 2022. You can go and look at the numbers there. I can't remember what podcast it was, but uh, these this guesstimate is based on that. So for that to have 810, 58 and 53, just doing some work, that is the highest numbers in all of them. The highest numbers that are... So I would be fascinated to know what percentage had four or more doses. Because if that is not the largest group, then you're having the largest... Not the largest group in terms of vaccination, having the largest group in terms of well, all three, hospitalisation, ICUs and dead. So that in itself could well be a very interesting statistic. Now, if it turns out that, you know, 90% of Australia is four-dosed, then that would explain those numbers, wouldn't it? But if it's not, that's a very interesting statistic and a table well worth looking at, and we may well be coming back to that in, the, in times to come. So, more about the vaccine now from Dr. Peter McCullough. I've queued it up, which is normally the kiss of death. Let's see if it works. Hey! My fault this time. I forgot to turn the speaker on. You know, there was a recent paper. I just have it on my Substack. If, if, if you want to review it, if you go to the Courageous Discourse Substack. And the first author is Helene Banoon. A former INSERM scientist. INSERM is a leading research unit in France. And Benuna summarized this. This is disturbing. It looks like the messenger RNA is transferring from the vaccinated to the unvaccinated now. Mm -hmm. And uh, in a paper by Fertig and colleagues, the messenger RNA is found circulating in blood for at least two weeks and the curves were not going down. That's as long as they looked. Rolkin and colleagues has found messenger RNA and the vaccinated in lymph nodes for months. It looks like the body's not clearing it out. And uh, and then a recent paper, this is most disturbing from Hannah and colleagues, JAMA, showed that the messenger RNA is in the breast milk of yes. women ill-advised who took the vaccine uh, during pregnancy or afterwards. So it's now clear, I think the messenger RNA, that's the greatest concern is, was could you actually take a vaccine inadvertently by close contact, kissing, sexual contact, breastfeeding. And it looks like the answer is yes. Now the question on the table is, how long do you wait uh, for contact? No one knows. This, the, the vaccines, the messenger RNA vaccines for short, they've never been demonstrated to actually leave the body. They look like they're permanent, uh, as well as the spike protein that's produced after them. This is very disturbing. So it's hard to guide. I was saying you know, 30 days refrain from kissing and sexual contact with a vaccinated person. But I'm now extending that to at least 90 days and and conservatively maybe extended from a point forward. I know there's married couples and all kinds of of, of personal implications there. But, but no, this messenger RNA looks like it's for keep. Every shot is accumulating in the body with no ability for the body to get rid to of it. To remove it. The vaccines, because they stay in the body so long, it looks like they do permanently install into the human genome. Mm -hmm. through recall it's called reverse transcription so this is disturbing that not only does the vaccines not get out of the body but now they're changing the human genome uh, this is shown in a human hepatoma cell line and so it's conceivable that two vaccinated people could actually pass the code for pfizer and moderna into the baby uh, permanently the the government as they developed these vaccines uh they went as they kind of rushed it through the final stages 
There was no assurances that these were safe. There was no genotoxicity, no teratogenicity studies um, now th th to learn. And, and in autopsy studies, the spike protein produced from the genetic material is found in the heart. Bowmeyer and colleagues have shown that. It's found in the brain, yeah. found in the brain, Mora and colleagues. So I can tell you, everyone who's taken the vaccine has this material in their brain, their heart, their adrenal glands, mm -hmm. reproductive organs. Uh, it, it's really a terrible thought. My heart goes out to people who have taken the vaccine. Yeah. As does mine. And the next one from MSN, and they seem to be quoting the Daily Mail, or at least the Daily Mail logo on it. And this is maybe a month or so ago. I'm trying to see the exact date. It's not, I don't think it's this year, but yeah, quite an unpleasant video, I think. Uh, dramatic video has emerged of the moment oh this is by Freddie Paul for Daily Mail Australia dramatic video has emerged of the moment parents watched their baby taken from them and placed into a doctor's care after they refused to allow him to receive a transfusion with vaccinated blood ahead of urgent heart surgery the six month old had been in a New Zealand hospital since November to receive surgery for a congenital heart disease that was delayed by several weeks because of the parents' concerns. A New Zealand High Court decision ruled the baby would be placed into the care of his paediatric heart surgeon and cardiologist until the completion of the surgery and post-operative recovery. Harrowing footage of the encounter shows the distressed parents frantically trying to speak with authorities as the baby was taken away by hospital staff. You guys will be recorded in the annals of history as criminals who take babies from their mothers. The baby's father can be heard saying to authorities, as an administrator informs the mother she can see the baby after surgery. After the distressing encounter, the baby's father spoke candidly to the camera. I don't know where this goes to around the world, but our baby has been medically kidnapped, he said. Thugs have come in wearing police uniforms and they've ripped the baby out of his bed. Let this be a lesson to the entire rest of humanity. The takeover has already started and it started on a hospital ward with a baby. Next, from Sussex Live Now. A little bit more light-hearted, well, for most of us, probably not the guy in the story. This is by Lacey Beck and Neil Shaw from the 19th of December. And it was, Lin uh, family can't sell house after finding out they don't own corner of living room. Linda, 73, has been unable to find out who does own the land a chunk of her house was built on 20 years ago. A family has been left unable to sell their home after finding that the corner of their living room and part of the garden don't belong to them. Linda Hoffman, 73, has been trying to sell her home for two years but has been locked in a dispute instead. Linda and her husband bought a section of land from their neighbours in 2000 with plans to build their own property, which they did in 2003. Then, in March 2021, they found part of the land doesn't actually belong to them. The family is still struggling for answers who actually owns the land, reports Nottinghamshire Live. Next. Husband's anger as wife dies after waiting more than 16 hours for ambulance in Hull. Matthew Simpson said there is no way that his wife, Teresa Simpson, should have been left to die the way she did. This is by Greg Millam, Chief North of England correspondent, and it's 3rd of January 2023. A devastated husband has told Sky News his wife died after, and this is from Sky News, waiting more than 16 hours for an ambulance to come to her aid. Teresa Simpson died at Hull Royal Infirmary in November after suffering a cardiac arrest and a lack of oxygen to the brain. A, the 54-year-old who suffered from diabetes and a muscle-wasting disease had fallen ill at her home in Hull. Her husband Matthew had pulled an emergency lifeline call when she became confused and the couple spoke to an ambulance crew on the phone. But it was only after he made a further 999 call when his wife appeared lifeless that an ambulance arrived. 16 hours and 45 minutes I had to wait and they only came because I had to ring them back and say she was lifeless, he told Sky News. 100% I believe that if they got to my wife in six hours, she would still be here now because she would have got help. Mr Simpson said he remained angry with the Yorkshire Ambulance Service. Um, my thought on that is obviously going through a dev very difficult time. It may not be the fault of Yorkshire Ambulance Service. It may be the fault of those funding Yorkshire Ambulance Service. And when I see the articles, um, it, it, the headlines in ma mainstream media is often 
when it's referring to the NHS strike we have here in Britain, it's always pay dispute. But going further into that, it that's not what they say. They're saying it's not necessarily about their wages, although they do deserve more money and should get some more money as well. But they're pointing out it's about chronic lack of funding and you can also look at millions and billions that UK government has given to well just go and look back at over the contracts that I've read out over this show that seem to be up in the air and if that money had gone to NHS instead of well we don't quite know where um, and I'm recalling where on previous uh, podcasts before we brought up articles where it's more or less said yep the money's gone um, and it didn't really do what it was meant to do but oh well if the money had gone to the NHS rather than to causes like that then I would hazard a guess to say Yorkshire Ambulance Servants may have had me more resources and that weight may not have been 16 hours but that man has suffered a bereavement and is in an emotional state and you know he's blaming the ambulance service or at least the Sky News says he is blaming the ambulance service but I think the people of Britain are starting to understand that these people do their very best and in order for them to strike they don't strike just over pay they strike over the fact that it is the NHS is being it, it, it the NHS is in a state where things like this happen and I think the British people understand that Next up, still uh, condolences to that man and uh, the rest of his family. It's a tragedy. From the BBC now, four days ago, new plans to widen police powers for disruptive protests. So you see, when the nurses and um, pretty much everyone else is going to be striking, handy to have these new powers for disruptive protests in place. So it's going to be the police cracking down on other people working for the government. This is what a decline of a democracy looks like in its the last days of empire. But what will replace it? Complete tyranny? Where, um, you know, Game of Thrones style scenario where the king says this and that's it. You know, government says no more... Well, you're allowed to protest, but oh, not that. You're not allowed to say that. Or do the people stand together, unite, which at some point looks like, you know, police and military joining that as well, and peacefully declare, I think this country could be run slightly better. We shall see. So, but generally when you're outlawing protests... And it's the nurses that are protesting. That road usually goes down tyranny. Until a point where people either accept total tyranny or go enough is enough. Not a prediction. Not an incitement. Not an encouragement. Just what I've read in history books. So this is by Becky Morton. And political editor she is, police could be allowed to shut down protests before they cause serious disruption under new government plans. So that will be, am I reading that in the sense that, you know, when we saw in Australia with the COVID laws and people planning anti-lockdown protests, they arrested them before they actually did it, didn't they? Like a preemptive thing and said just organising it and planning to turn up was enough under the law. And a lot of those COVID laws were back down, so they've looks like the, the uh, government have gone. Oh well, actually, yes, we probably shouldn't have done that under COVID laws. We probably didn't really have that jurisdiction. Well, let's give ourselves a jurisdiction then, and it won't just be for anything COVID laws, be for for nurses as well and anyone else that disagrees with us. Downing Street said the proposals would help officers clamp down on a disruptive minority who use tactics like blocking roads and slow marching. Yeah, I'm all for peaceful protest. 
and one must accept that one can be a peaceful protester and disruptive. Now, one can also be a non-peaceful protester and disruptive as well, but you can, you know, a, a protest usually is disruptive because that's what it needs to be, That hence the protest. But obviously, you know, there would be, if someone was violent, there would be laws already to deal with that. So I imagine that this is for, you know, peaceful protesters. We're peaceful protesting. Yes, but you're being disruptive. Well, a protest is meant to be disruptive, isn't it? Yep, well, illegal now. And what was it? Was it a JFK quote, something along the lines? Those who make... I'm recalling now. I've probably, I'm, I'm going to butcher this, but I'll, I'll do my best anyway. Those who make peaceful protest illegal make violent revolution inevitable. I think that was the point. Now, what JFK didn't mention was that, um, you know, those violent revolutions can go a variety of ways. Um, you could get a utopian thing out of it wherever, you know, a free world is built, but more often than not, judging history books, it's usually someone worse. Or, um, you know, or it appears to be good to begin with and then it gets worse. Or the replacement is just as bad as the other and you find out they have the same financial people or um, the violent revolution is put down by um, by the state and they then use that as an excuse to put total tyranny in place did I read out some articles about what happened in Sri Lanka last year along those lines so um, while I agree with JFK's statement I think it's much better to have option one, isn't it? And to uh, go, I think we just want to have a right to peacefully process. Is that okay? It's like the cornerstone of any democracy. Can we just keep that there and not go down any of the other unpleasant stuff? Apparently not here in Britain. So Downing Street said the proposals would help officers clamp down on a disruptive minority who use tactics like blocking roads and slow marching. It said the changes seek to give police greater flexibility and clarity over when they can intervene. I interpret that as it, it said it changes the seek, it, the changes seek to give police greater flexibility and clarity over when they intervene. I it, interpret that as when the government says we, we can intervene and we don't like what they're protesting, let's be totally clear, you can now do as we say, legally. So greater flexibility and clarity over when they can intervene is we can do more when the government says it doesn't like it, would be my personal interpretation of that. But human rights group Liberty said the proposals amounted to an attack on the right to protest. Well, it seems like Liberty would um, agree with me about at least the potential dangers of this. The plans will be set out in an amendment to the public order bill due to be introduced on Monday. Its aim is to crack down on disruptive protest group, disruptive protests by groups like environmental activists Just Stop Oil, Insulate Britain and Extinction Rebellion, which have used tactics including blocking roads. Now I've given my opinion on this before. I don't, I, I don't know what Insulate Britain is, um, but environmental activists Just Stop Oil and Extinction Rebellion I'm not in the man-made climate change camp. I'm with many scientists that believe the data does not suggest such things. And the biggest changes, Ice Age, for example, had really nothing to do with man. Climate change does occur, but man's effect on it is there. Now, we should cut down on pollution, absolutely. But uh, CO2 is what plants breathe. Um, and all that stuff about the electric cars well have you seen how the lithium's mined and everything so um, so I'm not with any of these uh, camps but I do support them and everyone else's right around the world to peaceful protest and sometimes if that peaceful protest is disruptive so be it as long as it's peaceful so we must stand up for one another's rights whether we agree with their points of view or not in my opinion uh, for peaceful lawful protest or at least lawful for now 
The bill which covers England and Wales is currently being scrutinised by the House of Lords, with any changes at this stage could be blocked by peers before they become law. The proposals are likely to provoke strong opposition from some peers who have been critical of previous attempts to increase priest powers to shut down protests. Number 10 said the changes would mean police would not have to wait for disruption to take place to shut down a protest. So, yeah, that reminds me of the videos that we saw in lockdown of that Australian woman where they just said, well, we've seen on Facebook that you're the one organising it um, and we're going to step in before you go down and organise it. It said forces would also consider the total impact of a series of protests by the same group rather than seeing them as standalone incidents. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak said the right to protest is a fundamental principle of our democracy, but this is not absolute. <laughs> Classic. I'm going to say something that everyone agrees with. Oh, mm, but we need to just tweak it a little bit in our favour. Uh, so let me continue. The right to protest is a fundamental principle of our democracy, but this is not absolute. A balance must be struck between the rights of individuals and the right of hard-working majority to go about their day-to-day -day business. So it's, we're standing up for the public. It's all about the public. We don't want you to have to have unnecessary traffic jams for these climate change people. And by the way, we'll just apply that to everyone that we don't really want that protest taking place from. Chief Constable BJ Harrington, the National Police Chiefs Council led lead for public and public order and public safety, said this will support officers in confidently and quickly taking action and making arrests where appropriate. We all know about the proposals to stop what the government calls disruptive protests in a press release issued by Downing Street. Number 10 says an amendment to the Public Order Bill will give police greater flexibility and clarity in their ability to stop demonstrators using guerrilla tactics and causing chaos. But see the wording there, guerrilla tactics. You see, um, guerrilla tactics, I think, you know, guns and bombs and Tamil tigers and... Well, guerrillas, you know, like the old jungle warfare, all that kind of stuff. I don't think sitting down with a sign really covers guerrilla tactics, does it? Um, but but maybe I'm sure the government could probably produce one thing and say, here, here's a here's a protester that used a guerrilla tactics, and I'll probably look at it and go, actually, yeah, that is a guerrilla tactic, but that's like. A very, very small percentage. Well, we want to just apply those laws to everyone, assuming that they will be that way at some point. We don't know that they're going to be that way because we're not going to let them go and uh, actually do it. You know, a little bit of minority report there, but there we go. Opposition parties and civil liberty campaigners argue the police already have powers to deal with dangerous or highly disruptive protests. The public order bill would introduce serious disruption orders, allowing police to place restrictions on individuals and greater stop and search powers. This pretty much looks like what they were doing during lockdowns that a lot of judges said, no, you can't do that. That's beyond the remit of the law. It looks like the Tories or you know the the um, the England branch of the WEF and um, I think Keir Starmer would be in that branch as well in my own personal opinion we know Rishi Sunak has his page on the WEF I've read it out on this podcast yeah. However, senior police officers argue there is a need for greater clarity given the complexity of case law. The Metropolitan Police Commissioner Sir Mark Rowley says he wants to know where the balance of rights should be struck. Um, I would suggest to Mr Mark Rowley that that's exactly where the Tory wants the balance to be struck um, because it's going to give them flexibility and clarity. So imagine that. Clear is usually something comes into focus. You focus on one thing. But this is going to be flexible and clear. Usually it's drawn in on something. You, you clear something by being inflexible. Yes or no. But it'll be both, both flexible and clear. Do you see how I think that'll be used? So the policing of the vigil for Sarah Everard inspired legal action which saw the High Court rule in March last year that handling breached the rights of the organisers. So yeah, so I'm going to assume that the governments, the you know, looked at that and gone, oh, the High Court ruled against us. We'll have to change that law then. That's, that's my 
feeling on it. But Martha Spurry, Director of Human Rights Group Liberty, said the proposals were a deliberate, desperate attempt to shut down any route for ordinary people to make their voices heard. Yes, and I think over the coming uh, few years, if the trend in Britain's and around the world continues, there are going to be a number of new voices looking to make their voices heard. Because, um, well, just have a look at 2022. Look at that and go... Was it good? No. Was it bad? Yes. Does there seem to be more of it? Yes. Does it seem to be getting worse? Yes. At least here in Britain. So that would usually imply that uh, if people are striking and protesting now because things are bad and it looks like it's going to get worse, there would probably be a safe assumption to say more people will be protesting at some point in the next few years unless things turn around. So Labour leader Sir Keir Starmer said the tactics of just oil activists were wrong and deeply arrogant but police already had the power to take action against them. Oh! So is he sort of coming out against this then? See, I've seen it enough times in politics where it's I'm in opposition, I will oppose, I will oppose, I will oppose and now I'm in power. Oh, do you know what? I'm not going to oppose anymore. But we voted you that you were an opposer. Yeah, well, you can change me in five years, can't you? What are you going to do about it? Protest? <laughs> not anymore. Uh, Labour peer Baroness Shamra Shagrabati, a former Director of Liberty, said police already had adequate powers to arrest people obstructing highways and the government's proposals gave officers a blank check. Yes. And remember, the banker... Oh, the politicians. <laughs> we'll write that cheque. The police can cash it in. And the taxpayer can pay. Now then. For 18th of January now. Mutiny erupts among WEF staff over role of Mr Davos. Founder and chair Klaus Schwab has run form for 52 years, but is now be seen by some past and present staff as a law unto himself. Oh, really? I always thought someone that said he deliberately wants to penetrate everyone's cabinets always seemed <laughs> such an agreeable, open-minded personality. So this is by Larry Elliott. The future of Kraus Swab, Mr Davos, for more than half a century, has become a talking point at this year's meeting with El World Economic Forum employees, voiced strong criticism of their chair and the lack of succession strategy. A group of current and former WF staff members who contacted The Guardian said the 82-year-old Schwab was a law unto himself and had surrounded himself with nobodies who were incapable of running the organisation he founded in the early 1970s. Klaus has been at the helm of the WF for 52 years. When he was born in 1938, 122 of the 195 states in the world right now did not even exist. He is completely unaccountable to anyone inside or outside the organisation, the group said. We are a group of current and former employees of the WEF. We want to play our role in fostering debate about the role this organisation plays in the world. The group said it wanted to remain anonymous. We are hesitant to come forward as Klaus is very well connected and can make life very difficult for us even after we leave the WEF. Now, I mean, it just sounds like such an easy personality to get along with, doesn't he? <laughs> Aren't we so pleased that that's the sort of mentality that's penetrated cabinets and Rishi Sunak has a, has a WEF page on his website? So speculation about Schwab's future has intensified this week after a piece on the online publication Politico said the WEF's strategic partners, the firms that bankrolled the £390 million, £350 million a year business, were unhappy about the lack of succession strategy. Yeah, but what would they want? If they're, if they're unhappy about Klaus Schwab, what is it that they're unhappy about? That he has penetrated cabinets around the world? Or that he hasn't penetrated enough cabinets around the world. So let's... Do you know what I mean? What what are they unhappy about? That he's done too much? <laughs> or not enough? Hmm. Let's see. There isn't much of a future for the WF beyond Klaus. Not just because there isn't a clear successor. But also because his managing board is such a viper's nest. That senior leadership will be at each other's throats the moment the old man pops off. The WF spokes. Oh, I think you'll find 
whenever he pops off, that I, I bet you you'll find the WF is, you know, well, whatever happens to each other's throats, I bet you they're still for centralisation of government, digital currencies, and vaccine passports, and and forms of control. I'm sure. I'm sure whoever comes out when um, when Klaus Schwab goes to the great penetrator in the sky, I'm sure they'll soon be able to um, figure out that those goals. Are, I, I bet there won't be a U-turn for away from those agendas after he um, passes on. That would be my speculative opinion there. Former UK Prime Minister Tony Blair is one of the leading international figures who has been linked with the role. The group of past and current WF employees question the ability of the organisation to func function without Schwab at the helm. Um, there, again, you can read more into it there, but that's where I'll leave it. All the articles, if you're new to the show, all the articles can be found in the comments section, so you can go and read them all for yourself. And we cover news from across the political spectrum from left to right and around the world and I own no copyright on any of the clips that I play. Something a little bit more historical now. World's oldest runestone found in Norway, archaeologists say. The 2000 year old inscription is among the earliest examples of runic writing. And that's Tuesday the 17th of this year, 2023, archaeologists in Norway have found what they claim is the world's oldest runestone, saying the inscriptions are up to 2,000 years old and date back to the earliest days of the enigmatic history of runic writing. I would I'd love it if they finally, you know, decipher what this rune is, you know, what this rune says or something. And it's like the 2,000 equivalent of saying Fred was here. Something along, something benign like that. What does it say? What great mystic uh, insights can we get into the history of our mil two millennial old ancestors? Says Fred Wazir. Yeah. So the flat square block of brownish sandstone has carved scribbles, which may be the earliest example of words recorded in writing in Scandinavia, the Museum of Cultural History in Oslo said. It said it was among the oldest runic inscriptions ever found and the oldest datable runestone in the world. This find will give us a lot of knowledge about the use of runes in the early Iron Age. This may be one of the first attempts to use runes in Norway and Scandinavia on stone, said Crystal Zilmer, a professor at the University of Oslo, of which the museum is a part. Now, something a little bit more light-hearted. Um, I keep this show clean, so I won't be saying the swear words that were used. Um, but if anyone is um, super, super, super doesn't even like, you know, the, the words being um, alluded to, then stick your fingers in your ears or stick the, your fingers in the ears of the person who might be offended, assuming you have their consent to touch them. And we shall begin. So this is by 17th of January by Neil Shaw and Adam Waring. So don't really stick your fingers in anyone else's ears ever. That's, that's a really bad idea. They're very sensitive instruments and you could cause some damage. So sacked worker banned from every B&Q for life after final customer announcement. The student grabbed the microphone and filmed himself making a sweary broadcast to the customers. A sack being uh, so. This is what he says. So he's been banned from every store in the UK after branding his colleagues C words and declaring F everyone in an explosive final customer announcement. Adam Powers filmed himself as he broadcast his foul-mouthed farewell across the hardware giant's branch in Western Supermare. A viral video shot by the 18-year-old shows him calmly declaring, "This is a customer announcement. I just got sacked, and B and Q are C words. F everyone." Have a nice day. <laughs> uh, of course, not funny if there were children in the store and to uh, expose to that sort of language. Um, that's just the 12-year-old the laughing in me, but I completely understand that they uh, may have uh, unpleasant um, consequences if children were to hear those words and 
I shouldn't exp expose those words just for going on a trip to B&Q. But anyway, yeah. The Guardian now. Something, again, a little bit more, well, less doom and gloomy, I suppose. By Mustafa Rachwani. This is today, Friday the 20th of January. We dubbed it Toadzilla, a giant cane toad believed to be the largest of its species found in Australia. The animal weighed in at a possible new record of 2.7 kilograms and was discovered by park rangers on a walk in Queensland. And it then says uh, uh, she's toxic, weighs as much as some newborn babies and was found in the wilds of Australia's far north. A giant cane toad dubbed Toadzilla that was found by rangers in Queensland Conway National Park on Thursday is believed to be the largest of her species ever found. So, again, the rest of the article is more or less just finding different ways of saying that. But feel free to read it for yourself. This is a bit more local now. And uh, I just wanted to... I know there's a lot of people that live round my neck of the woods that listen to this podcast, or that I should put that round the other way in a far less flattering way. I know a lot of people that listen to this podcast live round these neck of the woods. That would be a more accurate way of saying it. So, um, and some of you that don't, so I do uh, apologise, but I'll only spend one minute on this. This is uh, by Born Free, so not exactly mainstream media, but uh, I just thought I'd uh, read it out. It's more of a local affair, really. By Peter Lindsay, 20th of January. Friends of Eastbourne Seafront are a committed group hoping for a change of fortunes in our beautiful town. They have posted online their reaction of the failure of Eastbourne Borough Council to secure new funding for the bandstand. They are very unhappy with Eastbourne Borough Council. Um, it goes into the semantics of it, which I'm just going to... Um, past, um, and I'll just go to the, the bits that the bits that I think are quite interesting. There's the actual numbers that I saw before. Um, oh, I'll just read it. Oh, right, okay. Friends of Eastbourne Seafront was asked to submit our vision for the Seafront and ideas for the bandstand and Redout and to work with the council on a bid. At the request of the council, we consulted with visitors, residents, hotels, bed and breakfasts, and local businesses. Carolyn Ansell, was, uh, that's our lo uh, local MP in Eastbourne, was clear that the project would have to be a very dynamic, innovative and exciting to stand a chance. Yet the consultants who Eastbourne Borough Council used to put the bid together did not even visit Eastbourne, although Councillor Robert Smart suggested it might be in the best interest of the project, which is they didn't even know the bandstand was closed, rings very true. The two leading council officers involved in putting in the bid together both went on holiday during the last two weeks before the bid was due to be submitted and we have to ask where Councillor Margaret Manister was, the lead cabinet member for tourism and culture. Why wasn't she leading on this project? After appearing briefly at the first meeting with Councillor Holt, she and Councillor Holt were never to be seen again. She didn't even communicate with us or work with us on the project. The council just did not seem to take this second round bid seriously. We felt they were half-hearted and had little idea or interest in what to apply for second time round. In sharp contrast, the council seemed to put in a great deal of effort into the levelling up fund first round. They were successful. Funding is now available for pedestrianising. Anyway, so... <laughs> I thought that was another... Another classic moment for Eastbourne Council. Moving on now. Thursday the 19th of January, yesterday. Horse meat, this is from the Metro by the way. Horse meat is back on the menu in the UK. But this time, it's by choice. It's by Josh Askew. Horse meat is returning to the UK dinner tables with a shop owner claiming there is increased demands for steaks, burgers, mints and roasting joints. As the cost of living crisis rumbles on, it appears many Brits have moved on from the horse meat scandal of a decade ago and welcome it back onto their plates by choice. Walter Murray, who has run quirky meat brand Kazizi for more than three decades, says horse meat is a cost-effective source of protein for households squeezed by inflation. So, I thought that was interesting that horse, ten years ago it was horse meat in our food supply and now it's give us the horse and um, I suppose it's still a step up from bugs although I respect vegans rights to disagree we can all agree to disagree can't we and peacefully protest anyway right let's move on now to some more stories and I want to play a video 
of Jimmy Dawes now. And uh, I do like to check the Jimmy Dawes ones in the... So guess what? To you check for swearing. Uh, Pfizer, uh, they didn't test to see if their vaccine stopped transmission. When the president of Vi Pfizer, Borla, he tweeted out many times and said many times that the vaccine uh, prevents transmission 100%. Um, I don't have those tweets ready at the ready because this just broke. So uh, Ezra Levant from the Rebel News confronted. I don't know where they got him. Maybe he's over at the WEF, but they got him. And they asked him the question that no corporate journalist will ask him. Watch this. Mr. Borla, can I ask you, when did you know that the vaccines didn't stop transmission? How long did you know that without saying it publicly? Thank you very much. I'm sorry. To that question. I mean, we, we now know that the vaccines didn't stop transmission, but why did you keep it secret? You said it was 100% effective, then 90%, then 80%, then 70%. But we now know that the vaccines do not trans stop transmission. Why did you keep that secret? Have a nice day. I won't have a nice day until I know the answer. Why did you keep it a secret that your vaccine did not stop transmission? Is it time to apologize to the world, sir, to give refunds back to the countries that poured all their money into your vaccine that doesn't work, your ineffective vaccine? Are you not ashamed of what you've done in the last couple of years? Do you have any apologies to the public, sir? Are you proud of it? You've made millions on the backs of billions. entire livelihoods. How does that feel to walk the streets as a millionaire on the backs of the regular person at home in Australia, in England, in Canada? What do you think about on your yacht, sir? What do you think about on your private jet? Are you worried about product liability? Are you worried about myocarditis? What about the sudden deaths? What do you have to say about young men dropping dead of heart attacks every day? Why won't you answer these basic questions? No apology, sir. Do you, do you think you should be charged criminally for for some of the criminal behavior you've obviously been a part of? How much money have you personally made off the vaccine? How many boosters do you think it'll take for you to be happy enough with your earnings? Nothing? Who did you meet with here in secret? Will you disclose who you met with? Great question. These guys are honest. These guys are honest. Who do you pay commissions to? Now, Ryan Grimm calls these guys uh, uh, terrorists and right-wing uh, white supremacists. That's what he calls these guys. That That's what the Intercept and Breaking Points will probably call these guys white supremacists if you turn into Rachel and Sager. In the past, Pfizer has paid $2.3 billion in fines for deceptive marketing. Have you engaged in that same conduct again? Whoa! <laughs> Are you under investigation? That's Mr. Dawes clapping. Like you were before for your deceptive marketing, sir. If any other product in the world doesn't work as promised, you get a refund. Should you not refund to countries that laid out billions? Yes. For your ineffective vaccine. Yes. Are you used to only sympathetic media, so you don't know how to answer any questions? <laughs> Shame on you, sir. Shame on you. That's Albert Bula, the boss of Pfizer. His people were pushing us around a little bit. Mate, he's pretty fit. I don't reckon he's had one jab. I'm huffing and puffing a bit. At least I didn't have any myocarditis <laughs> um I, I i dare say he's shocked that in his safe space at the wef here in davos that he was challenged in a way that he's never to date been challenged well that's the thing we're not accredited media here we're on the outside of the perimeter so he's only used to the softballs from that's cnn right. and msnbc and people like that i asked him a real question about product liability no answer a real question about Pfizer's past deceptive practices. You know, they paid the largest fine in American history to the Justice Department for deceptive marketing. I don't know if that's underway right now. I don't know if they're being investigated, but I think they should be. When did he know 
that the vaccine didn't actually stop transmission. I wanted to find out because surely he knew before we knew. Why didn't he tell us? I don't know. Avi, I'm really proud of that uh, question. It was like a kind of walking scrum. Join effort there because I'm... So that was fantastic. Yes. You'll never... You, they're 100% right. You'll ne they're not accredited media. And, uh, and you'll never see those questions from CNN or Rachel Maddow or anybody. You'll never see the New York Times, Washington Post. Nobody's ever going to ask those questions. Uh, the Young Turks certainly won't ever ask those questions. Jack Uger, they don't, even, they don't even know what questions to ask. They have no idea about anything. They're the most uninformed people in the world. But tip of the hat to Rebel News. What a thrill they was that that's when that's when journalism can really get you excited. Yes. That is awesome. That was amazing. But I also have to tell you, I'm just reporting this as a story. I'm reporting that this happened at Davos, and that's the head of Pfizer and a news crew uh, confronted him. I'm just reporting that. I'm not endorsing uh, what they're saying because as you know, I think the vaccine is safe and effective and it does stop it does slow transmission and contraction, even though Pfizer never tested for it. It YouTube YouTube knows better. And so uh, it does slow trend and it'll keep you uh, from being coming ill or in the hospital or dead. So it's great. The vaccine's great. The fact that he doesn't want to talk about it or answer a question and no one in corporate media will ever ask him that, those questions because they're paid by him. That doesn't mean anything The the vaccine is safe and effective and it's fantastic. It doesn't just because the guy who made one hundred billion dollars selling it around the world uh, won't answer a simple question about it. That doesn't mean anything. YouTube knows better. That was great. Great work. Everybody, we're doing live stand-up comedy in Los Angeles in January and February in Los so Angeles. That's where I'll leave that there. Uh, unless anyone's in Los Angeles and wants to go and see him live. Uh, I've never seen him live or worked with him, but um, I do like his show, so I'm sure he's a great stand-up. And uh, perhaps if you get the opportunity to do see him live. Now then, from the... This is 01-19-23, so we know that it's uh, American, because there is no 19th month. And uh, indeed it is, from The Hill, uh, by Derek Fox. Utah surgeon, others accused of destroying vaccines, giving fake shots to children. Salt Lake City, Utah, a Utah plastic surgeon, his neighbour and two others are facing charges in connections with allegations that they gave people fake vaccination cards and destroyed government-provided COVID-19 vaccinations. They are also accused of giving children fake COVID-19 shots. According to court documents, Dr Michael Kirkmore Jr., 58, and three others allegedly ran a scheme out of Plastic Surgery Institute of Utah, Inc. to defraud the United States and Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The documents say Moore and his neighbour, Christine Jackson Anderson, 59, were members of a private organisation seeking to liberate the medical profession from government and industry conflicts of interest. The pair, along with office manager Carrie D. Burgoyne, 52, and receptionist Sandra Flores, 31, are accused of destroying at least $28,000 worth of COVID-19 vaccinations and distributing at least 1,900 doses worth of fake completed vaccination record cards. The court documents allege the fake vaccination cards were sold either for direct cash payments of $50 per person per occurrence or required donations to a specified charitable organisation. The documents estimate the fake vaccination cards have a total value of nearly $97,000. And we're going to go to Reuters now. And it says US FDA CDC. Oh, there's an advert that's just popped up just where I want to read. Ah, see, early signal of possible Pfizer bivalent COVID shot link to stroke. This is uh, January the 13th. Uh, this January 13th story has been refiled with an edited headline to clarify that the link to a stroke is possible, not definite. A safety monitoring system flagged that. U.S. drug maker Pfizer and German partner BioNTech's updated COVID-19 shot could be linked to a type of brain stroke in older adults, according to preliminary data 
analysed by US health authorities. The US Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, and the FDA said on Friday that CDC vaccine database had uncovered a possible safety issue in which 65 and older people were more likely to have an ischemic stroke 21 days after receiving the Pfizer-BioNTech bivalent shot compared with days 22 to 44. An ischemic stroke, also known as a brain ischemia, and I apologise if I've completely butchered the pronunciation of that, is caused by blockages in arteries that carry blood to the brain. The FDA and CDC said that other large studies, the CDC's Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, other countries' databases and Pfizer-BioNTech's databases had not flagged this safety issue, adding that it requires more investigation. Although the, uh, and that's where I'll leave that there. You can see it for yourself. Now, let's finish today's show by listening to Dr. Mike Yeadon. I played a clip of his on my two hour special, but uh, this is a different one. And um, let's listen to being interviewed. And he's talking to uh, Reinhard Fuller, who I also. Sh- played a clip of on my two hour special but this is not it's those two men but it's different clips uh, at least i believe anyway spoken only a couple of days ago and yeah. the as a result of you and some other scientists taking a closer look at the so-called lots or batches which as you describe it and this is our legal analysis as well as well um, is compelling evidence for premeditated mass murder. You had prepared a presentation, which we never looked at, but do you have it with you now? I, I don't on my end, but um, uh, what I'd like to do briefly, Rhino, is just um, for those who haven't seen Go me ahead. before, I want, I want to establish my credentials and uh, push back a little bit on some criticisms I've had uh, and then to just step through what I have observed happening because of the, as it were, from the scientific perspective, uh, and then say what I think is happening, and there's a couple of bits of evidence. So that will just like set the ground rules for 10 minutes or so. Sure. And then, yeah, I want to go into the very alarming um, results of, of analysis of uh, the VAERS data as it pertains to the the vaccine lots. Um, and I've got a lot to say about that. So maybe um, uh, maybe Corvin would be able to find that short presentation that I sent. I think for. Wednesday's discussion. Maybe we can yeah. we can throw that up. If not, maybe append it to this recording, or however you normally do show notes or whatever they call it. So, okay. Well, um, thank you for the opportunity again to speak to you, um, Rhino. I think I mentioned a f- when we spoke. I think in the summer that uh, what what your team is doing is, of course, completely unique. I don't think there's anywhere else on the planet that's spoken to between one and two hundred experts each in their field and recorded an hour or more of their analysis of the situation so you know hopefully in combination it's going to make sense uh so yeah so I, i'm dr mike yeadon i describe myself as an industry veteran i've worked in the biopharmaceutical industry for all of my life my first degree was biochemistry and toxicology um english people don't like to brag but i'm told i should i was top of the year by a very long way. As an undergraduate, I worked under military clearance at um, Porton Down, that's the equivalent, I guess, of Fort Detrick. It's where the UK military develops its so-called chemical defences. Um, and um, so I was under the official secret act. They must have thought I wasn't a crazy person at the time. I also worked for six months at the um, police forensic service um, headquarters at Aldermaston. So I learned a lot of analytical techniques in that time. Then I did a research-based PhD uh, in respiratory pharmacology. Um, and then after that, uh, I jumped into industry. I had seven years, seven happy years at the Welcome Research Labs before they closed after being acquired by Glaxo. So my my career spanned the consolidation phase of pharmaceutical companies and uh, we call it the dirty snowball. You know, companies became absolutely huge, and that's relevant to what's happening today. They are, are so large, so powerful. Um, so after that, I went to Pfizer in the UK at their very famous Sandwich Kent research base, 
Um, I think more drugs were, blockbuster drugs were discovered and released from that lab than any other single establishment on the planet. I, I wish I could claim I had anything to do with it, but I didn't. But what it did do is give me the opportunity to learn, as it were, at the knee of uh, great drug discoveries. People who actually conceived, you know, led programs, invented molecules, developed them, gone through safety testing and launched them, and they're all made more than a billion a year thereafter. So, so it's a really good place. So that's where I'll uh, leave it. I might um, play a bit more of that next week because basically that for first five minutes was his credentials, wasn't it? <laughs> Sorry about that. All right, oh, we'll pick, up, pick that up next week. Thanks very much for listening.